my sister and I made websites when we were like, I don't know, probably 12 and 10 or, you know, 14 and 12, something like that. There was a comment section and someone, some sort of early internet troll wrote something dirty on my sister's website. And then my dad said we weren't allowed to, to, to make any more websites. So that was the end of our, our development career. <laughs> Well, no more internet for you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's why I work at church because I'm not allowed to work at internet. That solves that problem. Right. Um, I had an AOL homepage. Uh, so, you know, there was that. So you are a canon lawyer? Uh, yes. How does that work? Uh, what? Sorry, that was... What, a... what is <laughs> Here's an abrupt turn. Um, like... <laughs> Wait, Luke, should you introduce the show? Hey, guys, this is Luke and Gomer with Catching Foxes. We're here with our guest, J.D. Flynn. Say hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Luke, that was an excellent introduction. Also, this is episode 11, (laughs) and you can find it at layevangelist.com. Blah, 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 blah. Yickety yick. (laughs) When you um, say every time you say this is episode number whatever, do you feel a little bit like saying just chill till the next episode? I'll uh, Snoop Dogg. Do you know who wrote that song? No. Jay Z. Really? Yeah. Jay Z wrote I think he wrote the lyrics to that song. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, apparently Dr. Dre doesn't write his own lyrics at all. Oh. Huh. He just does all the beats and stuff. You know, a lot of people today talk um, uh, like they forgot about Dre. <laughs> <laughs> now, y'all act like you got oh, right, something right, to right. say. <laughs> you had me hook, line, and sink. I was like, oh, okay. And then I, was like, I was like, well played, sir. Well Thank played. Well, well played. So um, <clears throat> now to talk about things. Um, you are a canon lawyer, right? Indeed. So yes. back to my earlier question, like, what does a canon lawyer do? Yeah, uh, so a canon lawyer, so canon law is um, kind of the internal disciplinary law of the church. So it, it deals with um, the laws regarding the celebration of sacraments, you know, um, all, all seven of them, the laws for religious institutes, the laws for the governance of a diocese, the laws for financial administration in the church. And so a canon lawyer is um, you know, trained in those things. And so canon law school is um, six semesters, three years, just just like regular law school would be. And, uh, and so canon lawyers practice... Um, you know, law in the church. The, the Catholic Church has the, the longest continually functioning court system in the world. So out, we've had a court system going sort of continuous, continuously um, at, at least since um, the time of Constantine and, and in some forms even before then. And so um, some canon lawyers serve um, as judges or as, as um, uh, in other roles in like marriage tribunals for, for, for things like annulments. Some, tribunal, some canon lawyers serve as advisors to religious orders my particular job, for the most part, is that I serve sort of as a canonical advisor to a bishop. So I just um, help a bishop to make sure that all the things that he's doing in the diocese are compliant with canon law and sort of serve as a, a resource in that way. Um, but I also do a little bit of um, kind of advocacy work. So um, if there are, you know, kind of legal disputes in the church, sometimes there's a dispute over property between maybe a religious order and a diocese or um, between a, um, a, a priest and his bishop, and those are best resolved according to, to canon law, of course, you know, you, you know, in, in, in the internal law of the church. And so I do a little bit of advocacy work kind of helping to, to resolve those questions. So you're, you're helping, uh, like in that case, a like priest and bishop follow scripture where St. Paul says, like, don't take it to unbelievers. 
Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So we have, I mean, there's a, and it, it, it's sort of the, the, the um, dispute resolution process in canon law kind of does mirror scripture because um, first you make a recourse to the person who has, you know, in some way you have a grievance against. And if that doesn't go somewhere, then there's sort of a, a mode of hierarchical recourse. But it is, you know, canon law, um, I always tell people, is, is applied theology. It's um, applied sacramental theology or applied ecclesiology, um, uh, um, even in some ways applied soteriology. And so it, it really is drawn from Scripture and then from the doctrinal teachings of our church. So since the, I don't know, like the, I'm trying to gauge like our audience. We got a pretty diverse group of people. Uh, a lot of white males who are former Franciscan students listen to this podcast. <laughs> so that's a very broad demographic. Yeah. Um, guys, we, guys from both um, uh, Colby and Francis. So yeah. like <laughs> Any dorm, really. Uh, we cover all the dorms, uh, except for lower campus, because they're gross and half yeah. human. Um, Is there a thing even? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, um, for people like... One of the things I you encounter today, uh, since America has a very heavy evangelical Christian bent to it, and uh, over and over again they say the same phrase that annoys me, but they still say it. It's um, Jesus came to give us relationship, not religion. And when you kind of drill down into that, they throw up like uh, legalism and moralism and stuff, which very much true. Jesus didn't come to just give us more morals or more commandments, um, but. When I was in an argument with someone one day and they said, of course, Roman Catholicism is legalistic. You have canon law. Like you have a whole law system to make sure people are dotting I's and crossing T's uh, correctly. Like <laughs> you guys are legal. You guys are worse than Pharisees. It's true. You know, when when people ask my dad, like, what what does your son do for a living? He tells them that I'm a Pharisee and he just sort of leaves it at that. Uh, <laughs> but thanks, dad. you know. It's um, the church. The church is um, divinely instituted, but a human community, and it's a human community that's pursuing uh, a particular goal, a particular end, which is the salvation of souls. And anytime you have a human community of people who are engaged in an apostolic, you know, an apostolic work together, or any any project together, um, law, Thomas Aquinas said, orients us towards the good. It conditions us towards the good. So. Um, law is not only there. You know, one thing about America is we have this sort of libertarian sense of law. It comes out of the the Enlightenment, I guess, but we have this idea that you know law is sort of around just to keep us from killing each other. But uh, a, a medieval notion of law, or even an Aristotelian notion of law, is that it's to um, condition us, pattern us after the goods that we're pursuing. So, um, yeah, well, of course, we think it's important to have a religious relationship with God and, and to be a part of um, religious practice. And we do have law, but that law is for the purpose of helping us all to be pointed in the same direction, which is the salvation of souls. Okay, that's awesome. That's a good answer. I like You're that. You're very smart. Do I pass? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, what I kind of feel like just happened there was that one part in, I think it is Happy Gil. No, it is Billy Madison, where they're like playing those like instruments. And the one guy is great. And then, and then Adam Sandler starts and he's like, that guy's pretty good. No? <laughs> Anyone? No? Uh, yeah, I, you know that the uh, the big guy from um, Happy Gilmore just died. Well, oh, oh, the, oh, the guy's like, I'll see you in the parking lot. That's exactly right. Oh so man, the off. golf ball off his foot guy. Oh. That guy. Pray for the repose of his gigantic soul. <laughs> <laughs> He's gonna need extra large angel wings. <laughs> um, so I can't say who I work for because of HR. Because of canon law. No, yeah, <laughs> but. I can say that I work for the, I work within 
of the Catholic Church in some type of a capacity, and the a bureaucracy is insane. Yeah, you work for like um, uh, a metropolitan see in a swing state in the Midwest, as I understand it. Uh, <laughs> yep. Well yeah. played, sir. And there is, yeah, there is bureaucracy in the church. That's that's definitely definitely true. Like, how do you as as a canon lawyer, how do you approach that? Like, how do you handle that? Yeah, I think, you know, something that my boss, I can't say where I work. I, I work for Bishop um, James Conley in the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska. And um, my boss um, spent 10 years working in the Vatican um, in, in one of the congregations of the Vatican. And, and that's all paperwork, you know. And, and um, it's tough, especially if you're a young guy and you want to be in pastoral ministry and your job is to kind of um, move paper from one side of the desk to another. Um, and so uh, one thing my boss learned there, and he learned it from the from um, some of some of the people who had been in the Vatican longer. A, a priest said to him one time, he said, "Never forget that um, every file you open, every piece of paper that you deal with, um, is ultimately a question that has to do with someone's soul and someone's salvation." So um, I I really try to remember that um, you know kind of the cool uh, out there doing you know frontline ministry. Um, is 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 animated and is helped and assisted by um, the kind of back office office ministry and that, that that kind of stuff is just as important for the salvation of other people's souls. Um, so I do that and then and I try to remember that and then like you know I, I like screw around at work and stuff a lot too. So that helps. That is extremely cool. I I have I mean I think I've tried to think about it in that way, but that's just that that is a great way to put it. Yeah, I've actually been. I, so my boss actually kind of. Like and, and fraternally kind of corrected me about it because I was sort of like, you know, kind of grumbling about having a big stack of papers on my desk. And he said, every one of those papers is connected to someone's salvation. And it, it put me in my place because that's totally true. And um, and the church, I mean, the, the, all of the kind of bureaucracy of the church, the things that the church does with, you know, real estate or insurance or property, those kinds of things. I mean, um, we're not building, you know, we're not doing those things like to build an empire or something. We're, we're doing those things to build a kingdom. And um, and they're important for the for the sake of the kingdom and, uh, and and for the sake of people's holiness. And so, it's it's helpful, I think, to to try to remember that. You know, Escrivá Jose Maria Escrivá talked a lot about um, just bringing, um, making your work a work for advancing the kingdom. And I think um, in a in a chancery environment such as the one where you might work or where where anyone might work, it can be hard to remember that. But it's it's important, I think. Absolutely. Now, uh, ever since I got into the wacky world of adult faith formation, my heart has been continuously broken, uh, having to deal with the RCIA, most importantly, people's marriages. Um, I have, uh, and this podcast is more or less for young adults, uh, other than Aunt D, we encourage her to always listen to the show. Um, Aunt D is awesome. Aunt D. I wish wish this were a call-in, just so she could call us. (laughs) Oh, Oh. I mean, that would, we would, we would just triple in ratings, but, uh, in, (laughs) in the idea of like young adults, one of the things I'm seeing is so many young adults coming to me wanting to enter the church because their fiance or, you know, someone that they're serious with, um, they have, they're, they're coming to me because their fiance needs an annulment. Um, I'm finding younger and younger people who, if they got married in the church at all, um, they are already divorced and seeking and then. It was a traumatic moment, brought them to their knees kind of thing, and now they've understood what the church teaches about marriage, and now they're trying to get married with someone new and uh, going through the annulment process and all that stuff. I, the annulment situation. So I know that – I mean I, me and my wife got engaged uh, 
at a, two very wonderful people at their wedding. We got engaged at their reception, and they were divorced, you know, a handful of months later. Um, I think, uh, I think you know, they call them starter marriages where people are married for six months, eight months. Uh, what is it? Your average is like 18 months for your first marriage. Um, so are you seeing well, – number one, help people understand that, number one, annulments aren't Catholic divorce. But number two, like – does it? I know for some people who don't get that there's no such thing as remarriage except upon death of a spouse in the Catholic Church, that it just seems like we're punishing people. You know, as one deacon calls it, it's the unpardonable sin. You get an abortion, go to confession. You get, you murder someone, go to confession. You've been divorced and remarried, stay away from communion. And he's saying that's not what I'm saying, but that's what people perceive it to be. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. You know, one of the things I really like about the Holy Father is that. He, you know, has been in in the mix of people for so long and in the front lines of ministry for so long that he's felt that pain that you felt. You know, he, he hasn't um, – and, and, and I mean I'm just a, a huge fan of, of Pope St. John Paul II and Benedict XVI uh, is, is um, like my favorite guy. But, um, but, but Pope Francis brings something new because he's been in pastoral ministry for so long and so he's seen that, you know, and, and I think that's what he's trying to kind of – find a way to talk about with the, with the synod for the family that we're um, getting started in sort of round two with in October. Um, people, life is, life is messy and, um, and, li- and marriage is hard. Um, for my wife, marriage is real hard because she's married to me. Uh, yeah, it's terrible. Um, you know, and, and, and people make good choices and bad choices and people mature in different ways and, and come to faith in different ways. And so, yeah, I mean, we're just living in a culture where, where there are a lot of broken marriages. John Paul II said that um, invalid and, and broken marriages are a symptom of the culture of death because he says so few people are learning in the family what it is um, to be a spouse. Yeah. And, and so many, uh, I mean, you got so many millennials who are the children of a or multiple divorces that were mm-hmm. horrific moments that they're afraid to get married. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's and 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 actually the um, the synod has talked about that the fear the fear of marriage. The synod has talked about that and how, how to help people. You mean the this. evil demonic synod that's hatched by Vatican three <laughs> yeah. leftists? Yeah, that's exactly right. They're they're talking about things like um, solidarity with people as they go through struggles. So we got to be really careful. Um, solidarity but, is a code word for soft. Yep, yeah, that's that's exactly the wussification of America. Okay, thanks, Obama. <laughs> You know, and Obamacare is going to have um, uh, a, uh, an annulment mandate in the next section where we're going to have to pay for other people's annulments. It's really terrible. <laughs> the annulment mandate. Pretty soon we're going to be paying for Mexican annulments. It's going to be the worst. <laughs> so, okay, so I was rambling. So um, what is an annulment? Um, an annulment asks the question, um, when, when two people got, got married, when they said I do, which is what makes marriage their consent, um, Two, two things. One, did they have the ability to um, to give their consent fully and freely um, with um, with the freedom required to make a choice that, that binds them in a partnership with the whole of life? And you're talking about at the moment of the vows, not 10 months later when he loses his job and then becomes a drunk and a yeah. loser or whatever. Consent is the thing that makes marriage. So when those two people stood on the altar or were on horseback in the Bahamas or were like, you know, somewhere in Vegas, did when they said I do, which we don't actually say in the right of marriage. But when they said, um, what, whatever it is that we say, um, did they, did they have the ability to say that I do fully and freely, 
uh, or were there psychological factors, internal or external factors that kept them from doing it? So that's the first question. And the second question is, when they said, I want marriage, were they saying yes to what we understand marriage to be? Were they saying yes to something that is a partnership for the whole of life that lasts until death, as you said? Were they saying yes to something that is, by its very nature, open to children? Were they saying yes to fidelity? Were they saying yes to will the good of the spouse? Because if I say to my wife, um, my beloved, my betrothed, I do, I, I marry you, but at the same time I say, but I reserve to myself you know, the right to be un as unfaithful as I want to be, um, well, then I'm not really saying I do to her. I'm not really giving her marriage or, or myself in a mar marital covenant. So an annulment looks at those questions. Was the person freely making an act of consent, and were they making an act of consent to what marriage actually is? And many people, because of, you know, especially in our generation, because of the way that they grew up and the things that they've seen, uh, it's true that because of the culture of death, many people aren't able to consent to marriage validly, or they, don't, they, don't, they aren't consenting to what marriage really is. And so that's where, where this process comes in, to look at the question and say, was this thing marriage from the beginning, um, or was this... Um, Maybe a good faith effort, but it it wasn't really entering into this covenant, this objective reality, um, from the very beginning. So when okay, this is a this question has continuously blown my mind. So when someone gets an annulment, that is essentially the church evaluating through testimony of the of the marriage vows of the two people at the exchange of their marriage vows, and it's discerning whether or not they had the the ability to make that consent whether they're free from internal or external pressure or whatever, um, and they understood what they were kind of getting into, right? Yeah, so were they, were they saying yes to what marriage actually is and were, were they saying yes in freedom? Yeah, um, okay. And, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Okay, so what I was going to say was the thing that blows my mind is that a, an annulment, isn't that a declaration that the, that the marriage is null? It doesn't make a marriage null. Yeah, annulment's a bad term because it's active. It sounds like we're doing something. Yeah. When actually what the tribunal is giving is exactly what you say, a declaration of nullity, which means that the tribunal has looked at all the available testimony, talked hopefully with both the bride and the groom, talked hopefully with their parents or their friends, uh, you know, perhaps had, had them undergo a psychological evaluation and then is saying um, with moral certitude. So a judge has to say this with moral certitude, which means he stakes his own soul on it. With oh. moral certitude, I declare... You know that, the, that these people entered into something that um, all, all having considered all the evidence was not marriage. Um, and I put I make that moral certitude point because a lot of people think like, oh, the church just, especially the church in America is just giving these things out, and there are so many annulments. There are so many annulments, and the reason for that is because um, we have a profoundly broken culture, um, not because the church is giving them out freely. And and part of the reason I know that is because uh, when a judge signs, and I, I I don't work in tribunals anymore, but I have when a judge signs that paper. He's saying, with moral certitude, I, I stake my soul on my affirmation that this marriage is invalid. And I think, you know, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to do that with integrity, or else you um, you go into hell. Yeah. So let me let me say this. Here's my follow up question. So let's say a couple, like let's say they had a shotgun wedding. Pregnant parents said, "You will get married before that baby. I ain't gonna be grandparents to a bastard baby or whatever." Forces them to get married. It's annullable. But let's say they never get an annulment. Are they really married? Oh, that's a great question. God, this a, question a... breaks my brain. I wanted to give a shout out to Hillary, one of my former teens. She sent me that. And ever since she sent me that, I, it has been killing me. Like, well, I don't maybe I don't know. Church supplies. I don't know. You're asking a great question. The church says that we have to presume every marriage is valid um, unless it's demonstrated to be invalid. So. All marriages are what the churches are putatively valid unless unless we can demonstrate otherwise. 
was the grace of was the sacramental grace of marriage there um, or not? You know, if they perdure in something that from was you know kind of um, um, infected with a problem at the root, um, was the grace of marriage there or not? Well, two things. One, I think um, I, I really do think that insofar as we give ourselves to um, what we perceive to be objective reality, the Lord supplies grace to us. Um, so. Um, the, there's grace there. I mean, for, formally, is it sacramental grace or not? It's, you know, um, an, an open question, I guess. But the Lord is unquestionably supplying grace if we're, if we're offering ourselves to what we perceive reality to be. Um, the other thing, though, that the Church says is that if there is something lacking in the consent, um, that a person is able to, at a certain point, make a new act of consent um, uh, in, in the context of the marriage. And so sometimes people who have concerns about the way their marriage began visit with their pastor and he helps them to kind of affirm their consent to the marriage, um, even, even after they've kind of formally undergone the right of marriage and so that they're able to have, have certitude about that. Because I do think the grace can come in um, when, when consent is present. You know, marriage is unique among the sacraments because um, all the other sacraments are new realities, but marriage is um, bestowing sacramental dignity on this um, pre-existing reality, this reality in natural law. And, um, and so we have this uh, c- capacity by our very nature to contract marriage with people, uh, you know, to con- with a person, uh, to contract marriage with a person. And I think God— <laughs> With a group uh, of people. Right, exactly. Yes. But I think that's so essential to who we are in a way that's unique among the sacraments, the very fiber of our being, that God um, just pours in grace when we're intending um, that good, even, even in some ways when form is lacking or things like that. You know, even without the formal sacramental grace of marriage, um, any step towards this this natural reality for which we're created, I think God just infuses with a profound amount of grace. Man, I love hearing a lawyer talk about grace. And <laughs> <laughs> when I think about that, I think there's a, there are a lot of um, cultural of cultural war elitist who don't want to hear that. Like they. Um, because that means that it's a little that well, how do I put this? Um, I just, I just thought out loud and now I'm paying for it. Um, <laughs> uh, like I, I think there, I think there are some people who think uh, the world is so black and white Yeah, yeah. that, you know, if you are married and if you, and if you, and if you get a divorce, you're a sinner and you're just bad. Remember when, remember when um, Pope Benedict XVI said that um, gay prostitutes in Africa who use condoms may be doing so because they're developing a moral sensibility? Yep. Uh, that was awesome. Oh, but I, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people get puritanical about that kind of stuff and think like, whoa, what are you saying? And I think that if Pope Francis had said that, people would have gone crazy because of the way that they, that, that they perceive him. You know, um, But it's true that I think there's a certain kind of puritanical rigorism that we have to be careful about, which I'm not, I, I'm not trying to be heterodox, but, but we do have to be careful about too much sort of kind of scholastic categorization of these things or too much sort of just rigorism about them. And, you know, it's that, uh, also ties into a bit about, about, uh, one of the things that I wanted to come back to was the idea that Pope Francis, um, he has a lot more experience in pastoral ministries. And that like that blew my mind when he talked about that. So of course he's going to 
be going into things like this, where if you look at our past two popes, because they don't have that ex- that experience, they tend to um, well, this is probably wrong. Um, paint in more broad broad strokes, which allows some of the people to um, turn that into a little bit like, uh, oh, he means this. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, those guys. I mean, they're both diocesan bishops, but they're academics, right? And, and yeah, and, and I mean, I I, I love those guys. Mm-hmm. That's why I get several comparisons, but. But they're, they, they think about things, I think, from a more academic perspective. And, uh, and so whereas the Holy Father, what's really beautiful and, and refreshing and I think bringing to fruition so much of what John Paul II and Benedict XVI taught us is that everything for him is rooted in not just um, humanity but in this person or that person. Uh, and so he does things w- without sort of saying, I'm bringing, making a universal norm here. He does things in relationship to his pastoral ministry with, you know, Gomer or, or Luke or, or whoever. And that's just a very kind of different way of us seeing the Holy Father, especially, um, and of seeing pastoral ministry. So it's, it's, it's neat, but it's really different. Yeah. Whenever uh, I have a handful of people that hate Pope Francis in my life, and uh, from day one, I've loved the guy. Every conversation with a microphone on an airplane, I got a little scared but loved everything he said. Like, <laughs> that doesn't mean he's, like, flawless, you know? But um, And they add this one person came to me and they said, he is saying so many offensive things to Catholics. Why? And I said, because he, he is an evangelist at heart. And he is actually able to uh, – the other popes that I love, like, I mean, I love St. John. He's the reason why I'm still Catholic. And then Cardinal Ratzinger, I was literally praying for him to become Pope, but didn't think it would happen. And then he did. And I made a dish called papal chicken while I was living with Luke. Um, in honor good of times. Him. Yeah. Good times. I uh, won a ton of money on that election. <laughs> <laughs> By the way. Habemos papam cash in JD Flynn. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but the, uh, the thing that I, I love about him is I see now that I actually I've gotten out of the – and it's kind of funny you said academic. For me personally, that I've gotten out of the classroom mindset, the catechetical mindset, and I'm more engaged on the um, evangelism proclamation area of my faith. Um, I've become less um, – uh, I mean, you can use the word puritanical um, rigor, um, less rigorous in terms of measuring people's faith by their um, doctrinal accuracy than I am about yeah. getting people to faith. Um, and uh, uh, destroying false obstacles to that faith. Like, I don't want to lower the bar of what it means to follow Jesus. And if you've ever heard any of my talks, you would never think that I do that. But I want to destroy the obstacles that are in people's way. And a lot of them are caricatures of what the church thinks. So, like, Pope Francis constantly, like, when he's on the plane, he's talking, I feel like, to the non-believing world or to lapsed Catholics more than he is to the people who get it. And I have friends that yeah. hate that. They're like, how come my last popes could talk to everyone and they didn't sing? And I'm like, they didn't. They talked to you and you're not pissed. But now he's not He's not yeah, addressing like, – when he makes a comment about uh, – what is it? The rabbits, Catholics multiplying like rabbits. That's what the world says yeah. about us. You know. And he's like, no, we yeah, have this right. teaching called responsible parenthood. You know. I like Ratzinger because he's sort of like a, um, a, a, a kind of a shy – like white guy from Western culture and I'm kind of a white guy from Western culture. And yeah. here's this other guy with this other thing. And so, yeah, of course it's going to be different. And the new evangelization is lapsed Catholic. So yeah. that's, that's what the Holy Father's doing. And you got to do that. You got to do that differently. You're absolutely right about that. That's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. He, uh, so my, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it just amazes me that, um, I feel like if people said, well, how do you understand what Pope Francis says? And I, I just said, the other popes tried to be the best popes, 
that they could be in order to explain clearly and demonstrate clearly what it means to evangelize and catechize and live the faith and pursue Christ. You know, all those wonderful quotes from JP too. I mean, you could like take every other sentence and turn it into like a, a tweet and Pope Benedict, you, you know, you take paragraphs and they just blow your mind in the, the intellectual capacity that he's able to pack in there. But with Pope Francis, I felt like here is a man who is leveraging the papacy to win individual souls. Like he's not afraid to, you know, um, like I, I really do feel like he bought a cheap car because he knew that that would pull away people's understanding of, oh, well, here's the Pope who thinks he's royalty and, you know, he does these things mm-hmm. intentionally because we have a world – it's like the world has abandoned and hates Christendom, that idea of Christendom. Yeah. And yet there are so many people, especially traditionalists or more traditional tending people, who think that that is the faith, that the triple tiara of the pope and right. all this – that defines the papacy. I mean you have the Sede Vacantus yeah. who say the reason why John the Twenty Third wasn't a real pope is because he refused to wear the triple tiara thing. <laughs> And uh, as if as if the keys as if that's what Peter had. Right. So um, it's just funny to me that they can't see that this and I think it's endemic of our Catholic culture in America where we're catechetical. We're not evangelical like we don't like to go out and preach the gospel. We like to hang out with people. We turn the church into a club of people with like minded views. I don't want you, you know, and Pope Francis is like, screw it. Let's go to a slum and hug people. Let's go to a let's go to washing some feet of some prisoners, you know, like. To me, that's the radical change that people are like in the world that are like, wait, what? You know, like this is what the Pope does. Our beloved alma mater, which I really do love, the Franciscan University of Stoneville, is telling that they have um, a catechetics concentration. Um, but, uh, but, but evangelization is something that you have to learn, I think, in a different way. Well, and, they do now uh, have one. Oh, really? Yeah, they Bob uh, Professor, Professor Bob Rice, I think, is in charge of it. <laughs> it's like uh, Behold the Lamb. <laughs> I am not a parrot. Anywho, this is the best song. That uh, now ever. I can't think of any Bob Rice songs. I feel, <laughs> I feel like bad Catholic. See, I mean, and, and a lot of it is I probably am a bad Catholic because I don't have a tiara and I don't know any Bob Rice songs. <laughs> I don't have a tiara. Where were you in 1998, J.D.? You know what I just realized? Uh, I am not worthy of your body and blood. Bob Rice songs. <laughs> That's right. There you go. <laughs> I forgot about that one. I used to listen to that one. I would feel guilty about myself in high school. And then you yeah, look well, at pornography and hate yourself even more. Uh, wait, did I just make it awkward? <laughs> no. No, no, no. It's totally um, normal what I just all, said. Uh, went to high school. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe this. This is a thought. That, well, this is um, to put it in Steubenville terms. This is this has been on my heart for a while. <laughs> it's totally Franciscan terms. I've just been discerning. Is this really on my heart? And I Do just you don't to get a word at this very moment. <laughs> I just don't think that God's calling is calling me to date you because I find you ugly. Um, <laughs> is that? And 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 I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I so I thought a lot about the whole a gay marriage stuff because it's just been so. I have a lot of friends who are gay and I just see it on my Facebook feed all the time. And I have reached a point where I'm just like, this is not a hill I want to die on. Like it's, I almost don't even care. It's the point that I'm at right now in the sense of like, whatever's going to happen is just going to happen. I just don't care anymore. And I'm just going to try to love people. Do you think I'm ignoring justice by doing that? I, 
don't want to go first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're you're being interviewed, so you have to go. First. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Uh, Twenty questions with JD Flynn. I'll say this: I I have two kids, right? They're adopted. Um, their their adoption is a blessing in our lives, but it's it's something that begins with tragedy, right? Because their natural parents couldn't couldn't take care of them, and so like the divinely ordained sovereignty of their natural family was disrupted, and that's that's a tragedy. Yeah. Um, what they were deprived of as a consequence of that was their you know their natural mother and their natural father. Um, I think that tragedy would be compounded if those kids. You know, I'm thinking of my kids in particular. I think that tragedy would be compounded if, in addition to being deprived of their natural mother and their natural father, they were deprived of um, motherhood or fatherhood. Mm. Uh, because I mean, th- those things are different, and 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 you can see that that's obvious, right? I mean, there's no getting around that. Those things are different, um, and they're both they're both essential. And you can, I mean, we've been talking in this country for a very long time about the impact of fatherless families and that you used to be okay to talk about that and it sort of isn't anymore. But I mean, I think most of us know that um, boys, especially who grow up without a father or girls who grow up without a father get kind of suffer in different ways, but that there's a, there's a loss there. So um, I think it matters because, um, because um, I'm glad that my kids get a mother and a father, but I hate to think about kids who, who won't. Um, and, um, and, and I, and, and, you know, so that's, I mean, it's just, those are the people for whom I think it matters, but I also think it matters because, um, we're all, we all benefit when we create stable families and when we get, um, mom, when we, when we tell dads and moms that there's a benefit to being together and raising their kids and, um, being rooted in a place, that's how we form stable communities. And that's, and the reason why we give tax incentives, why we've historically given tax incentives for marriage is to get people to stick around with their kids. And the more we devalue that potentially, the more we in theory sort of undermine that. But I mean, that's, that's sort of the theoretical. The thing that I'm really concerned about is that we're making it easier and easier to deprive children of motherhood or fatherhood. And, 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 and that just strikes me as tragic. That's a great point. That is, so you're looking at it from the angle of children's rights of the child's right to a mother and a father. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, just the just the virtue of motherhood and fatherhood, and 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 the fact that they really are different. And anybody who's experienced the positive love of a father and the positive love of a mother can't deny their importance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, no, that's those are all excellent points. I where I'm struggling, and and it isn't all with anything that like you had just talked about is as I try to engage the world about all of this stuff, what does that look like? Yeah. And, and I, and I'll be, I, I, I'm at a place right now where I don't know. And I'm, I guess I'm kind of okay with that in the sense that I always kind of uh, go back to the quote from Pope Francis. And I am paraphrasing him where he says, I would rather have a wounded church than a sick church. So in my mind, I'm like, I've got to do something and I'm going to, and I'm going to do my best, but I, again, I don't know what this is going to look like. Yeah. You know, so it's, I, and it, I'm sorry, you go ahead. No. Well, I think what we were talking before about Pope Francis and, and John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and something I was thinking about then is just how much that they embody the fact that there are, you know, many parts to the body uh, and, and just such a diversity of what apostolic Christian life can look like. Um, you know, I don't think we're all, we, we. I mean, I'm certain that we can't. We're not all called to be like sort of on the front lines of every issue. Um, and I think um, witnessing. I mean, witnessing to the vitality of the Christian life, like witnessing with enthusiasm 
to the veracity of the Christian life w- with authenticity too, with the fact that sometimes these things, these objective realities that we believe in are hard, um, but, 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 but to their veracity and to them, their meaning in our life is the piece. Like the political stuff is, is really important. I, I really do think that. I think we have to be in that battle because if we're not, there, there are people who have an agenda that's subversive to, um, to the salvation of souls that will be there. And, and so we need to be there too. Um, but the stuff that I think animates that is being present um, in people's lives with a with a witness to the Christian, you know, to to the veracity of the Christian life. Wow. Yeah. I don't know if that's a good answer or not. I'm just saying stuff. No. <laughs> a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Yeah. For me, I feel like the um, the gay marriage debate, like theologically, hinges around the nature of man and woman, you know, and the the sexual complementarity. And uh, it's funny because the conversations I have with teenagers are like, what, you don't think they can love each other? I'm like, no, I think they can, and I think they do. Oh, you think that they can't yeah. raise kids? No, I think they can, and I think they're doing it. Well, then what the hell is your problem? I'm like, because marriage is a thing. It's a, it's an actually yeah. existing thing that predates government. And it's like, well, yeah. human, human society, we just made that up. And it's like, no, that's the other way around. Marriage is made up human society. It's not an invention of the, why does every society, no matter how quote unquote primitive or quote unquote advanced, actually the more advanced you get, the less central marriages, but all these societies, they enshrine, even societies with a hyper promiscuous culture, even societies with, um, that were, that have no problem with, um, uh, homosexual relationships in terms of, you know, physically like ancient Greece in both Athens and Sparta, Sparta had it as a part of their legal code for their soldiers to sleep with each other. Like, and yet they never saw validity in something that, that would make marriage between two men or two women that to them was no, the sexual union and complementarity of a man and a woman, a mother and a father were, is what was required for a strong polis or whatever. Um, but so I would say to these kids, I would just say, um, you know, they would be like, well, marriage isn't sacred. You tell me Britney Spears's 24 hour marriage was more sacred than two men committed for life. And I'd say, no, that's not sacred. That's kind of what's undermining the whole thing. And I said, but at the same time, let me ask you a scientific question. Uh, what are sexual organs? And they'd be like, what do you mean? I'm like, do you know what a sexual organ is? I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, what is it? And he's like, these are body parts they used to have sex with. And I was like, right. Is, in homosexual coupling, there's either A, the same sexual organs, or B, you're having sex with something that's not a sexual organ. And I was like, and, and that's where kind of the, the ratification of a lot of this ends. You know, because you can't have sexual complementarity, but on top of that, it's not even intercourse. You know, I mean, that's, that's the whole point. It's not coitus. It's not intercourse. It's, you know, whatever you want to call it, mutual masturbation or whatever. And, I, and, I, and again, I have to express to these kids. I had one kid who just like clenched his fist and locked his jaw staring at me. And I said – and I'm not even saying that that's like – they can't be expressing true and authentic human affection in their sexual acts. I said, but they're not having sex because they're not using sexual organs or only one partner is or whatever. You know, so um, it's a lot. It's, it's, there's so much there that I feel like – the only people, though, that get heard are like, well, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Yeah. And then debate's over. Do you guys ever read Father Shaw, the, uh, the Jesuit? A uh, little bit. He said recently that because of that, we, he said, um, we're almost certainly not called to be martyrs for the gospel right now. He said, we're almost certainly going to be called to be martyrs for objectivity because there's so much lost on just 
you know, marriage is a thing. Um, sexual organs have complementary relationships. It's just these objective sort of um, yep. and obvious human facts. He said, those are the places where we're going to have to have martyrdom now. And it's, it's you know, in some ways that stuff, the, those kinds of arguments, they're not necessarily attractive to the gospel. And I think that's kind of the drawback that you're citing is like, well, do we have to be pugilistic about these kinds of things? Um, and I think it's got to be a both end because we've got to be in the mix on places where real lives can be impacted by um, the, 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 the death of culture and the death, especially the death of political culture. But we have to provide a vibrant, beautiful, compelling alternative at the same time instead of just being kind of the party of no, so to speak. Oh, so what you're saying is we all have to be Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I was at a Republican gathering recently in which I kind of got kicked out because I made some points about poor women that they, that they didn't, didn't like that much. <laughs> <laughs> Poor women, they don't exist unless they're lazy. Get rid of this guy. <laughs> they won't be voting for us anyway. <laughs> yeah. Soon no one will except men with floppy hair named Trump. I I can't believe how legit he is now. I know. He's a sideshow. Is this happening? Yeah. Oh man. I I thought he's going to quit like 5 times and he just he just he just keeps going. He's fueled by his money and his ego. He ain't going nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully well. he'll run as an independent. And then sadly, well, that means that we'll definitely have Hillary as the next president. Yeah. You know, I read yesterday that less than 50 percent of Democrats support Hillary right now. Well, because she's viewed as part of the cultural machine. Yeah, Or exactly. the political machine, not the cultural machine. Exactly. We well, may end up old Bernie Sanders. Yeah, yeah, Bernie Sanders. I'll tell you what, man. Millennials love Bernie Sanders. He's, he's interesting. Well, I I'm mean, a millennial. I mean, I don't agree with anything he says, but I sure like listening to him. I think there is uh, some stuff that he's angry about, not everything, but there's a couple things that he's upset about that I think, yeah, that yeah. sucks. Yeah. But I just don't I, agree with his answer. I just keep wanting to tell him like that he should – like, yeah, he brings up all the right problems, but then he doesn't. He's not a distributist, so I think he has the wrong answers. Oh, you're a distributist, a classic distributist. I mean, I I got bow ties and everything, my man. <laughs> I've got bow ties, every book written by Chesterton and Belloc, and my own <laughs> plot of land. <laughs> I'm going to go pretentiously smoke a pipe. <laughs> and I don't know what you mean by distributist. Hey, J.D., me and you are going to have a conversation about distributism, <laughs> and we're just going to leave Luke out of it. How does Listen, that sound? Aaron has an undergrad in, in economics. I could just ask her. Uh, okay, can I, can, I, can I tell you what Aaron's going to say? Can I play Aaron? Sure. Can I yeah, play yeah, Aaron yeah. in this? Yeah. But the problem is someone who studied economics is going to say, well, that's just some dumbass theory. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, you're fine. No, you got to realize Aaron loves Austrian economics. Oh. Are you familiar at all with Austrian economics? I, I am indeed. It's based, insofar as I know, it's based on Milk and Kaiser. But yes, I am familiar <laughs> with the Austrian and school of economics. That yes, might yeah. just be my own experience, but it is literally <laughs> driven by large candy bars. Filled with oh, right. apricots and yeah. beer. And somehow I, I lost weight. Okay. Yeah. I would just hold out my money in the spar because I didn't know, like, whatever they were saying. Why Why is there so much dried sausage <laughs> just everywhere? <laughs> you want to know what I used to do? So for all of our listeners, we attended school out at a Franciscan a university in Steubenville. And they have a study abroad program at where, you, where you're able to go and, and, and stay out in Gaming, Austria, which is just an amazing place. It's in, in where is it at? Is it out in central Austria? Yeah, more or less. 
Soothe Österreich or something like that? Oh, yes. Soothe Österreich. Yeah. It's like kind of far, a little bit far from Vienna, but not as far as it is from Salzburg. Yeah, yeah. And um, so there was this bar there called Urs, and right next to Urs was this bank. And so I was actually oh, – That I bank was there stole so at, much money from me. <laughs> at the same time as oh, your sister. And I used yeah. to – go to the bank and after like, you know, like five drinks and just like withdraw like a hundred euros, like drinks on me. (laughs) I spent so much money. Oh man. Drinks for other people. You know, my sister tells like the parallel story, which is I would wait till Luke had a few and then wait for him to buy a round. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That is my single regret. Not going to Austria when Luke and Adam went instead, I went the following year uh, where all my, all, uh, my friend now, Father Paul Koska, when he went with his grade, and they were all incoming sophomores, and I was an outgoing senior, and it, I had a blast. I had a handful of the juniors that I hung out with, but it was the wrong time for me to go. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Oh, uh, it was. I mean, I had a blast. Like I wouldn't, I would, I don't regret like being there. But if I could have changed one thing, it would have been just get the loan money and go out earlier. Which, as a Dave Ramsey disciple, I would never tell people to get the loan money, but get the damn loan money and go out earlier. Uh. Get it, as the Austrians would say, the market will take care of you in the long run. <laughs> the invisible hand will guide you to Bernie Madoff. Um, Indeed. Anywho, oh, good times. Now I want to tell a can I tell a JD Flynn story? This is my favorite J.D. Flynn story. But do I do something weird in it? You do something hilarious in it. Okay. So I- just I, I'm just all my life I have heard the phrase, this person who needs no introduction, and then they go on to introduce them. Yeah. And then one day I was invited to the reception for the ordination of Father Paul Koska and uh, Father John Ignatius. John, Father John was my spiritual director back in the day. Mine too. Father Paul was. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Father Paul is one of my best friends. Uh, I knew him growing up. I'm responsible for his conversion to Christ, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and um, I shepherded that wee little boy. Um, ooh, that sounded weird. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Edited. Uh, Thank you. The canon lawyer just started taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, safe environment. Red flag going off. Um, thank God I'm not in youth ministry anymore. Uh, so with this. Uh, so at their thing, Father Paul told me the night before the reception that I was to give him a toast. So, I mean, the whole morning, like, it's just, we're just, we wake up and you get ready to go to this thing and you're at this thing for hours and then you leave and you hunt down some food and then all of a sudden you're at this reception. I had no time to prepare a speech. So you were the MC of the night and you literally, so the first guy goes and you could tell that he had prepared something very beautiful. It was. The guy was, that gave the speech about Father John Nature. Yeah. The, yeah, he so went, nice. He went first. It was a very nice thing about his life before Denver, basically. And then I was supposed to tell the story of Father Paul's life before Denver. And so I walk up there, and I had a handful of, like, gay marriage jokes that I'm happy (laughs) I didn't use at all. Because it was like a reception that felt like a wedding, and there's two guys there. And I mentioned to Father Paul, what do you think about that? And he goes, you better not. And I was like, okay, shit, I'm all out of material. Boo words, boo words. (laughs) And then you get up there and you say, and now for a man who needs no introduction. And then you just left. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and i lost it that was the greatest introduction of all time <laughs> i want to thank you for that moment in my life i tell That's you what awesome. though you probably got a standing ovation you truly needed no no introduction you you killed it in that room you uh you brought the room down i made bishop uh 
Aquila, what's his name? Is it Aquila? Archbishop Aquila, yeah. Yeah, Archbishop Aquila. I made him uh, red face laughing so hard with my opening line was, I know we're here for the ordination of two priests, but there's enough little kids here. Uh, it's like I'm at a La Leche League convention. <laughs> and he laughed so hard. I could see his red face. And someone came up to me and was like, he rarely laughs. That's <laughs> true. It's true. But he, he uh, I, I do remember that he laughed at that. And, and, and I did too. But it's not as hard to make me laugh. Yeah, it was so great being there. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> I was in Idaho, so I couldn't go. Um, and some kind of militaristic militia or cult. <laughs> well, funny that you should say that. No, no. <laughs> Do you guys have any Idaho listeners? Because I just defended them. Hopefully just the people who at the school I was a principal at. So he was a principal of a school. Of a K through 12 school. Oh yeah, that's right. My sister told me that. Yeah. 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 It was it was great actually. It was um so um you actually just wrote a chapter in a in a book. I did. Uh and I'm supposed to be promoting the book, so I will do that. Um I can't remember the name of it because it's a little bit <laughs> I have to look at my email. <laughs> it's a great book. You guys are doing me a real favor because I, I genuinely have to look this up. Oh, that's fine. The book is called the book is called um, Special Children, Blessed Fathers, and um, it's written um, by uh, a bunch of fathers who have children with disabilities, a bunch of Catholic fathers who have children with disabilities, and it's sort of an encouragement for fathers of children with special needs to um, uh, um, uh, uh, yeah, to, uh, to the to kind of leadership and to to, um, to the value that comes in, in, and the blessings that come through those kinds of families. So something. So I was asked to write this chapter, um, uh, I guess, about a year ago. And um, what I found out when I was asked to write it is that uh, having a child with special needs is like uh, one of the leading indicators of divorce, even among people who um, are, are religiously devout. Um, and and I was surprised to, to hear that, um, but um, it's true that that that's um, having a child with special needs is something that frequently leads to not not just to divorce, but to um, um, fathers and abandoning their families. And so this book was written by a bunch of dads of children with special needs to kind of encourage them, you know, encourage fathers to, to see the grace that comes with having children with special needs and, and to just give some, some support and solidarity to fathers in, in those kinds of situations. Um, I don't get any money from the book. All the royalties go to something called the National Catholic Partnership on Disability, which um, helps parishes. It gives grants to parishes who want to, like, find ways to do... Um, Inclusive religious education, inclusive faith formation, uh, help schools to, to Catholic schools to do, um, you know, to, to be better at inclusiveness and and to understand disabilities better and things like that. So it's a great great organization, and all the money from the book goes to it. And the book is called Special Children, Blessed Fathers. Oh, that's awesome! That is, yeah, that is incredible. You know, I yeah. have so many people that you know when you talk about like the abortion issue, their whole thing is like, no, if I find out my child has a mental handicap. I'm going to abort them. You know, like it's like yeah. the that's the reality. And to find out that you have, and the way I found out that you actually adopted um, uh, two children, that you adopted them, that you chose them, that you desired them, that you did not like the rest of our culture discard them, was actually when I was reading the website First Things, and I read your open letter to Richard Dawkins. Huh. Yeah. Well, I want to be clear about something. Um, we and I'll, I'll talk about the Dawkins thing in a minute, but. We actually didn't pursue children with with disabilities. We, um, you know, we God called us to adopt children. We we um, after um, you know trying to have children for a bunch of years, God called us to adopt children, and our son 
who we were just matched with with the adoption through the adoption agency um, had Down syndrome uh, when we replaced with him, and it's been a great blessing for us. One of the things that we later learned is that very few people who pursue adoption are are open to having children with Down syndrome. But we were, you know, who a kind of awesome story guy gave us our son, and then a, a little less than a year later, our adoption agency called us on a Thursday and said, um, uh, "There's going to be." Um, a baby born on Sunday. We just found out about her and um, she has Down syndrome and her parents are looking for two things in an adoptive couple. They want people who already know about Down syndrome and who are devoutly Catholic and, and do you guys know anybody? And so um, we called Father John Ignatius and Brother John Ignatius and said like, uh, do you think this is prudent? And he said, well, I don't know if it's prudent, but I'm sure you guys are going to do it. And so we called the <laughs> agency back. <laughs> yeah. So we called the agency back and said, yeah, we'd love to. And then our, so our daughter was born just 51 weeks after our son, and, uh, and they both have Down syndrome, and they've just been a tremendous, tremendous blessing for us. I mean, I, I, love, I love the hell out of my kids, but we didn't pursue it. God gave it to us. And I think what Father John said to us is he said, if God, if, if God has given you in your family this kind of unique situation and the unique gifts of these children, you have a responsibility to be witnesses to, um, to the beauty and to the dignity of people who have of disabilities. And we've tried to take that seriously. Um, but our kids are just are just phenomenal, and 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 many people who I who I meet, we didn't really know a lot of people with Down syndrome before then. But um, many people who we've had the grace of meeting through our kids with different disabilities have really touched our lives in in a lot of ways, and 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 really um, helped us to understand our own relationship with God the Father better. Um, we look at our children who are disabled and who need so many so much help from us to do basic things, and and we're, when we realize how 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 much that endears them to us. And we realize that the, the, the help that we need from the Lord for even very basic things must also endear us to Him. And, uh, and so it's been really a great blessing for our faith life, too. That's amazing. Um, oh, because you were out in Denver yeah. before, right? Um, did, you, uh, uh, did you ever meet uh, Dr. Fran Hickey? Yeah. Yeah. So Aaron is as uh, she she actually lived with him for for a bit. Well, sorry, him and his wife, his family. <laughs> um, oh, uh, uh, well, good save. Good save. That's something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so I got to know him extremely well, and all the work that he is doing, and it's and with him and his son, and him, uh, um, his son has um, autism as well as down syndrome. And it was, I love James. We we actually just uh, had him over at, um, my apartment here the other night, uh, while his wife, because they are from here originally out in Cincinnati. And so it's been such a blessing to get to know them. And James, especially, it's just, he's just an amazing kid. Yeah. Um, I've not I've not met him, but Dr. Hickey is a really cool guy. He he, when Pia was born, so he Dr. Hickey runs something called the C Center for Children with Down Syndrome in Denver, which is like a top notch medical clinic that people come to from all around the world with their children with Down Syndrome. And um, and so when Pia was born, and we came in with her, and we had we had the two of them. I mean, he kind of like shook his head at us, but then the very first thing he did was write down his cell phone number, his home number, um, his like schedule a list of his fears anything that we could use to, to get a hold of him that was a Simpsons reference but i don't know if you if you picked that up oh that was a deep one <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. good job thank you um so yeah he's a, he's an amazing guy and and so many people who work with with people with disabilities really are i've been reading a lot of um i don't know if you guys have ever read john vanier who's um a kind of 
Canadian theologian who who has founded communities for people with disabilities called Larsh. Yeah, but Vanier writes a lot about just how transformative having relationships with people with disabilities can be in our lives. And I definitely found that to be true. Yeah. Now, awesome. getting back to Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is a famous um, evolutionary biologist. I think he wrote uh, the famous book, The uh, Greatest Show on Earth, um, which is awesome. And then he wrote, which is about evolutionary biology. And then he wrote The God Delusion, which obviously I am a person of faith. I go on faith journeys. Um <laughs> I hate that language. Whenever I'm at church and someone's like, we're going to go on a faith journey. I'm like, can we not? Yeah, it's the feminization of Christianity. Yeah, or the Christianization of feminine. Anywho. Um, Whoa! <laughs> you <blew> my mind. <laughs> Anywho, he, uh, Richard Dawkins recently, av- or recently, last year, advocated that it would be a morally good thing. It's a morally bad thing to let um, human fetuses that have um, – down syndrome to that we have a moral imperative to abort such children um that she would have a woman would have acted immorally if she did not abort such children um and you wrote an open letter that i think is awesome i don't really like open letters because uh really there's only three open letters i like uh one steve jobs open letter to adobe about flash <laughs> two steve jobs open letter to the music industry about drm and three, your open letter to Richard Dawkins. Uh, thanks. And I don't. I want to be clear. I'm not a big fan of the genre. Um, in social media these days, you can find like an open letter that is just every single person's way of making themselves sound awesome. That it drives me crazy. But um, Luke, I'm going to write an open letter to you. Deal. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, but I wanted to get the thing published, and they kind of liked it, so that worked. <laughs> there you go. Win win. Right. But the the idea of it was. Um, you know, so Dawkins had said these things about the, the moral imperative to abort children with Down syndrome, and and, um, and and actually it was kind of Pope Francis who kind of put this in my in my mind. But um, Pope Francis talked so much about encounter, the the importance of the encounter with the other. And so, you know, I wrote this letter in which I sort of summarized Dawkins' position and 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 juxtaposed it with my own, which is to say that you know all all people have the dignity of of life and 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 the, the right to life and. What I tried to do instead of just sort of making it kind of um, polemical was to say that my experience with my children had taught me the dignity of of, of the lives of people with with disabilities and 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 that the just kind of being able to interact with them and see that they're ordinary people and they have an ordinary range of human emotions and desires and you know preferences and things like that. So I I wrote this little letter in which I kind of laid some of that out and then I said that he should come over to our house for dinner and encounter our children and then tell me if he saw that there was anything worth worthy in their lives. The way you ended it was perfect. I don't want you to come over for a debate. I don't want to condemn you. I want you to experience the joy of children with Down syndrome. I want your heart to be moved with joy, moved to joy as well, which is awesome. Like our, the whole point of our podcast is we don't want to just sit here and give instruction, right? Uh, you can get that in a million places. We want to have an ongoing conversation about these things um, and allow the open-endedness of life and the messiness of life to kind of seep through. But then you ended it in the perfect way possible. Any day next week is good for us except for Wednesday. Sincerely yours, <laughs> J.D. Flynn. <laughs> What's funny is I actually had something the next Wednesday, and I was a little bit worried that he was going to take us up on it, and I didn't want to get in trouble because I was supposed to like clear these things with my life. So I. <laughs> so that was a literal I was invitation. I was this... real serious about that. Yeah, yeah. Wednesday, I got to take the kids to the park. I already told my wife that we'd have a play date, and you know, <laughs> exactly. I can't. My wife hates it when I skip out on play dates. 
what what I do a lot, maybe you do this too, is like I I like I'm an inviter, so I'm constantly like I'm walking around in the neighborhood and I see somebody and they say like, Yeah, come over right now and then I come home and like everyone's in their, you know, pajamas or, or their underwear or whatever and, and I should have cleared it, you know. So I'm I, I wrote this right at a time when I was trying to learn how to clear things with my wife before I did it. <laughs> I think that's what uh, I'm going to ex- experience when I get married here soon is a lot of things like that. Cause I'm the exact same way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an adjustment. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this is, this going back to kind of one of the things that we wanted to talk about, but we are all over the place. One of your last articles was on the one and only culture war. Um, and for me and Luke, we've talked about a handful of things like, you know, people say like every politician, I feel like they get up and whenever they give their speech about why they're running, they're like, America has been more divided now than ever. I feel like everyone on the left and on the right says that. Um, and uh, and then we often frame it within the context of a culture war, especially on the right, where it's this all or nothing us versus them. And uh, often people are not us enough or they're too much them. Um, and we draw these really sharp lines. Um, but you were responding to David Brooks in a column called The Next Culture War um, in response to the whole idea of, like, how ought Christians to present themselves to a world in a post-gay marriage in, – in a, in a post-gay marriage accepted world, right? Yeah. I love what you wrote. I hate the tendency for everything to get us versus them so quickly. Um, yeah. And for us to draw these lines that are impossible, you know, one of the things that I love from Dr. Hahn was he one time said um, the, the, the sin of the modern era is that we absolutize the relative and relativize the absolute. And wow, what he meant awesome. by that was – right. What he meant by that was like we, ab- we relativize like what you were saying, objectivity, God, um, you know, marriage, things that have stood the test of time. Now all of a sudden, not only are we hanging question marks on it, but we don't even believe those things can endure whatsoever. There's no such thing as objective anything. But it's that at the same time, we engage in this process of making other things that clearly are not absolutes absolute. And um, one of the – I don't know. I feel like that thinking creeps into both – the. if we live in a culture of death, you'll find signs of this culture on both the left and the right. Uh, you'll find it on the Democratic Party line you know, with abortion and, and euthanasia and the right with war and torture and the death penalty. Um and people who are Christians will often say, yeah, but the death penalty, that there's plenty of – they're not, it's not intrinsically evil like abortion. You know, that's just straight-up murder and war. You know, there's just war and torture. Well, what if we really – you know, maybe it's not torture or, you know, in this case it matters. And, who, you know, I, I just feel like I'm struggling with this whole thing. Like I feel like I'm, I'm caught in as a – I don't know, as a millennial. I don't, I don't even know if I'm phrasing it right, but – I'm caught in this thing where, like, I'm so done with the polemics, but at the yeah. same time, I have my absolute standards. I have the the moral, um, the exceptionless moral norms that I absolutely adhere to, like my fathers before me. But at the same time, I can be friends with gay people. I could, um, I, I I can love people who aren't who don't share my views. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's fine. What are you doing? Are you on Tinder again? <laughs> did you guys see that thing in vanity fair about yeah that? yeah we yep. talked about it last time oh. I, I mean if you would have listened to the podcast you'd know that I, yeah I, I gotta learn how to listen to podcasts um <laughs> no, no it's cool don't worry about it <laughs> <laughs> i think you know first of all if you can like if you can love people who don't share your views more power to you because that's something hard for people right i mean i really do think we are so 
tribalistic and not just not just people who agree with us are tribalistic, but it seems like everybody is. I mean, yeah, we, absolutely. We, 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 we define ourselves according to the, according to these, um, perspectives. And so we just want to kind of ghettoize ourselves into our groups. And, and there's something natural I think about, about that. I mean, it's okay, I think to seek like-minded people in some ways. Um, but, but it can be very dangerous too. Um, something father John Ignatius reminded me of recently. Uh, he said, um, he said, your vocation, your vocation is much, he said, he was talking about everyone. I mean, I'm talking about me, but he said, he said, um, your family is not big enough to be your vocation. You can't, you can't just be locked into kind of, I take care of my family or even sort of, I take care of my tribe, the people who, 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 who walk, talk and act like me. Um, but I have to be, I have to be bigger than that and, and find ways to bring, you know, the gospel to, to a broader, broader swath of people. And I think that's both. I have relationships with people, and I and I love them, and I'm and I'm you know I, you can only spread the faith among your friends, and so I'm forming authentic friendships with people who are who are different from me. I think it's that, but I think it's also really making a stand, and especially a prophetic stand against things that are that are evil, and calling people to conversion when they have been um, when they have been ensnared by by the, by the lies of Satan, and um, and that stuff like um, that stuff is unfortunately that stuff ends up turning into like political battles and, and CNN, but, um, there's gotta be a better way to say to people, um, you aren't, what you are talking about is evil. You are enslaved by it. And Christ is the liberator, um, than the way that we're doing it. But I, I think it's important to find that. Mm, yeah, it's true. Because I think when one of the ways that that can be accomplished is to have conversations like like what we're having right now and but one of the things that tends to get lost in that that i think isn't happening here is that we are pursuing some type of end or some aim or some real clear under understanding of of um what is true good and beautiful because instead it just becomes you just go like around and around and you just go like in circles, pretty much. Can I give a, 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 a church example that kind of drives me crazy of, of what you're talking about? Oh, yeah, of course. So, so something that drives me crazy among um, our probably peers and contemporaries and, and even a lot of leaders, you know, sort of Orthodox Catholic leaders is um, the phrase, um, you can't be Catholic and pro-choice, that makes me livid um, because you're Catholic because you're baptized, right? I mean, it's a supernatural act that makes you Catholic. And then we have we come up with these other things. Um, you can't be Catholic unless um, you meet um, these certain standards that I've decided are essential for Catholic identity. Um, they they are essential for full communion of the church, and they're important. But um, God is what makes us Catholic, right? And yet we kind of impose all these extra standards on things instead of saying to people, um, in, in not in a prohibitive way, but in a liberating way, uh, because you're Catholic, you have the grace for freedom from this intellectual, the, the intellectual error that allows you to support abortion or whatever else. And so it becomes prohibitive instead of, instead of liberating. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that there, yeah, I mean, it totally makes sense. I, I think going back to my favorite philosopher, which is a dude from Notre Dame named Alistair McIntyre. McIntyre. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What, what? <laughs> he talks about how like in the medieval university, because 
and, and people do not who've never studied medieval culture, medieval like university life debates and all this stuff, they kind of think of this as homogenous Catholic thing that happened in Europe and thank God it's over. It must have been so boring, everyone agreeing all the time. But it was filled with with number one cantankerous old men but also with people who were struggling with like especially with the aristotle rediscovering aristotle in europe through the muslim commentators and jewish commentators um and all this stuff it felt like an atom felt like an atom bomb in the world like in the culture all this stuff and people were wrestling with it no do we stay more augustinian do we bring in augustine all this stuff but there were epic fights and all of this stuff going on there were bad priests and scandalous actions of clergy and all this stuff it wasn't like everyone was 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 perfect um but the one thing that they did is they all had the f- same first principles they all understood morality from roughly the same perspective and even if they totally disagreed with one another on some issue it wasn't so total a disagreement that they couldn't find a resolution and in the end he said because this mcintyre saying because they had these um these shared first principles they could ultimately fight over the conclusions and come to a resolution and that yeah. was the point of the university system. He said, but now after the Enlightenment, uh, really after the Reformation and then the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment being the consequence of the Reformation, um, and then today, which is the rejection of the Enlightenment solutions and all this stuff, we don't even share the same first principle. So even though we might say words like good, bad, immoral, moral, neutral, um, you know, we use these words, we mean different things by them. You know, one might be a utilitarian, another a consequentialist, another a deontologist following Kant, another one a Thomist, whatever. Um, and you talk about abortion and people say like, oh, is it a good, a bad, you know, and you're use- and the reason why we can't come to conclusions and why we end up just screaming at each other is because we don't have the same first principles. And so and then he makes a horrible line that essentially in the past, the clergy and the clerics of his day, of the medieval day, we're able to resolve these disputes. But today, what do we do? Well, we just take it to the courts. Mm-hmm. And so the clergy, the lawyers today are like the clergy of our new millennium, which is terrifying because all lawyers are evil. Every one of them. Every <laughs> freaking one of them. Hey, what do you call 100 lawyers at the bottom of the sea? Hey, I got to go. A good start. You, you get it? <laughs> oh, I oh I got it. I, I And I hadn't heard it before, so that made it particularly awesome. You know, like, I'm I'm like like I went to uh, law school, but I I still work at church, so I'm poor, and I feel like that should give me a little bit more credibility. <laughs> yeah. you don't Absolutely. chase ambulances, you. I I chase crozers. I don't know. <laughs> I you chase souls, JD. You chase I, souls. Every piece of paper you chase is connected I, to an immortal soul. Oh uh, yeah, blah blah blah. On one note, I just want to say this: like I've read After Virtue like four times, and I don't understand what the hell it's about. So Mazel Tov for boiling down McIntyre. The, the only reason why I even know of the name of that book is because Gomer was obsessed with him when we were in college. That, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's like, I have a hard time with McIntyre. So I'm, I'm like, I'm, 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 you're real smart is all I'm trying to say. I agree. Okay. <laughs> I agree. Um, I just want to end on this last, last note. Cause it is getting pretty late. Um, and, uh, I'm supposed to have some sort of responsibility to the rest of my family. But, um, they're all asleep and all the kids' rooms are near me, but I'm still talking full volume. And I've deprived my entire house of air conditioning, just so you know. Um, 
You don't let them have air conditioning when you're doing a podcast? Correct, sir. Because the Priorities. unit is right on the other side of my windowless wall, and it vibrates multiple panels and <laughs> interior wiring or something. And it vibrates, and it's so loud. Like, I have to talk over it. So I, what I do is I turn the air conditioning really low for a couple hours, and then I turn it off. And then right when I start to glisten, that's when I... Uh, that's when I go back and try to end the podcast. But this uh, this is what I think. This is cool. Remember when you said unit? <laughs> that was great. This would not be an episode where not uh, where sexual innuendo is not bantered about. Listen, at least I didn't I didn't say anything about um, Scrooge McDuck and genital warts this time. So go on, Gilmer. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, we have to. Pretty say, awesome. <laughs> we have to say the last episode we have gotten so many comments on from people. My favorite being Tom Mastriani, who said, uh, "What do you say?" I got to admit, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard was you you giving me the word picture of Scrooge McDuck swimming in gold, as but they're actually genital warts. We were talking about Tinder. Yeah. Okay. Well, in that case, it's totally reasonable. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You're yeah. just going to have to listen to that episode. <clears throat> yeah, I have to learn how to listen to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> one day. One day I'll teach you. Um, I only have a record player. I, 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 oh, that's awesome. I'm a guy who um, eats Werther's Original, if you know what I'm saying. You, <laughs> you are a Werther's Original. You watch EWTN for the mass. <laughs> a lot of my friends work at EWTN, so I, I can always say nice things about it. Hey, no, listen, I love EWTN. They showed me on their show for 52 seconds what, out of an um, hour-long one, program. The one for kids? Uh, the Donut Man. Life on the Rock? Oh. Life on the Rock. No, it was the Donut Man, the one for little children. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Hey, kids, if you see this guy, run. <laughs> We've been warned by a canon lawyer. Run. Um, no, I think uh, – so me and Luke, we always talk about this podcast as being the intersection of pop culture or culture and our faith. We Usually what we mean by culture is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think that's fair to say. And how? And Disney. Hey, Emily, just because I hate adults who like Disney, yet I myself read comic books – does not make me a hypocrite, okay? Yes, it does. So I uh, don't read comic books, and I like Disney. Yeah. Shit. No, You're fine. in the Luke camp. That's fine. Yeah, That's fine. fine. Hey, hey. Team Luke. This it's is diversity. Two yep. white guys talking on a microphone. This is our diversity. So you are on Luke's <laughs> hey, side. That's why should we worry? Why should we care? Wow. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I missed that. What was that? Oliver and Company. Yeah, man. You've never seen Oliver and Company? So, so back to my original question. <laughs> Where were you in 87? I've never seen any X-Men movie, if that if that all. Oh, oh see, I've, I've seen that. Oh, come on. You want to start you, – you, and you know what? I'm not you're, – you're trolling me. You're trolling me. You're getting <laughs> I my goose. <laughs> I, I am indeed. Yeah. Uh, okay. Anywho, back to my happy place. I want to just end on this note. We started this podcast because we wanted to – uh, well, really, we just wanted to talk to each other with an excuse that my wife would have to buy um, mm -hmm. late into the night. Uh, but the idea was the intersection of culture, whether that's pop culture or whatever, and our faith, I believe that we need to put a greater emphasis on that as the church because I feel like there's so much kind of kinetic energy of the church's activism that's being channeled towards law and not culture. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's totally true. Yeah, and the, yeah. I mean, there's a saying that law is downstream from culture that once the culture accepted um, the culture accepted abortion well before it was enshrined in law and Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolson that the, the whole um, 
the whole idea of in the 1960s, people were doing abortions in medical hospitals with zero legal repercussions, even though it was 100% legal or illegal, um, means that the culture had shifted. And so uh, we Can I just say, I don't, I think you're, I think you're wrong about that. If, if I'm allowed to disagree. Oh yeah. And I think you are allowed to disagree. Tom, sweet. Like the, the, I mentioned the domestic sense of law and I think it's really important because law is one of the contributory factors in culture. So like, I think, I think sometimes we're a little bit escapist when we say, uh, and, and I hear a lot of seamlessly garment types saying like, well, let's just change the culture and then we can, and then once everyone sort of agrees with everything, we can change the laws. But that's, that's again, like a social contract vision of law that doesn't have the idea that law is formational and instructive. But Gomer, in your house, you make rules for your kids because you know that those rules are going to like um, give them habits which help them to perfect virtue. And so uh, I know I'm going on a tangent, but no, I, I don't think you're really going on a tangent. I think you're nailing it. <laughs> Sweet. Because we've got to be really careful with that idea that uh, we will make this sort of um, um, utopian Christian culture, and then we can make some sweet Christian laws. Law, law, it, law is a factor in the creation of culture. Right, absolutely. One of the factors, but a, a, but a factor. But yeah, we need to invest a lot of money in art and, and, and literature. Um, we, be, beautiful liturgy needs to be the starting off point for investing a ton in the formation of all kinds of elements of Christian culture. I think what I mean uh, specifically by culture is cultural engagement, as opposed to focusing with our funds and our time and talent on the legal thing. Because I absolutely do believe that law is constitutive of what culture is, just like you said. Like, that's 100% true. And you are right, and I've totally been guilty of this in the past, where it's kind of actually like a way of excusing myself from the legal thing, right, of like not having to contribute money. Well, I'm going to go affect the culture more than the the Supreme Court, you know. Um, I've definitely said things like that in the past. But the, the reality is... That even if we were to get a constitutional amendment passed that is pro-life, if the culture is still pro-death or there still is this culture of death, it will mean less and little, right? Um, it will have an effect of shaping people. It will also have effect of deterring people, but it will also have an effect of the opposite reaction of people who, in response to such a law, um, you know, doing it in, in an activist sense, you know, where they otherwise wouldn't. So what I'm, what I'm talking about is, I guess you would say conversion of hearts, especially individuals, rather than trying to convert the masses solely through the legal thing. I think we should, I think there are people whose entire apostolates are the shaping of law in order to shape culture. But what I mean, ultimately, what I mean is the church cannot exist in a subculture. We can't, whether it's a self-imposed, you know, that kind of the same vibe that uh, I had. I'm a homeschooler, you know, and there's a lot of people who are like, you know what? I just don't want to be around people who aren't like me, who don't have the same values with my kids. And to a certain point, you need that. You need people to reaffirm and support your your views and values. But I feel like there there enters into this siege mentality where we're comfortable creating a subculture where, as Luke said on a previous show, don't just make the Christian version of good stuff. Just make good stuff. Yeah, you're nailing it. And it's the whole problem. You guys, I'm sure, read Rod Dreher and the Benedict Option. Um, yeah, I read that, yeah. Dreher's version of the Benedict Option drives me crazy because it's this whole idea of like strategic retreat into ourselves yeah. it, um, is, is, is self-defeating. Um, and there are people, there are souls right now who would benefit from our engagement with, with culture and the formation of Christian culture. And, and just to add for people who have no flipping clue what we're talking about, um, he Sorry. is a, a Time Magazine columnist, right? Did he work for Time? Maybe it's written for time. He, um, he, I think he has his own website called um, The American Conservative. 
Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I read this one particular article in that. Well, the Benedict Option, coincidentally enough, is referencing Alistair McIntyre. Yes, it is um, indeed. Where his whole thing, McIntyre's whole thing was that St. Benedict of Nursa, the founder of Western monasticism, in the decaying collapse of culture of the Roman civilization in the middle of the, you know, the beginning of the Dark Ages, he started monasticism, which ended up carrying civilization alive within its walls until ultimately almost every town in Europe was built around a monastery, that it became the new cultural center. And he's basically taking the front half of that and saying, well, obviously now gay marriage is enshrined. We've lost it all. So let's instead we can, since we can't have these elements of Christendom, let's kind of wall ourselves in um, more like a bomb shelter than a monastery. Yeah, in my I mean I mean I might be oversimplifying it, but no, I think I think you're right. But the the problem was the Gregorian impulse of Saint Gregory the Great. He was a Benedictine who, had, who became Pope. He would send the Benedictines north into Germany in order to convert people, and the monastics became quasi missionaries and back and forth. Um, and it was the way that they radiated their life that helped to convert. He had to be restrained from his own missionary impulse. I mean, he constantly wanted to flee to to what England, right, for missionary work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And said the he sent he just sent more Benedictines out to go found monasteries, and by their way of life transformed people as opposed to hiding behind the walls. You know, everybody of, thinks the Amish people are cute, but nobody. Uh, I mean, when's the last time you, you heard somebody who became an Anabaptist because they thought the Amish were cute? Um, it, mm. Yeah. We've got. I mean, we can't. We can't. We can't assume that people will see sort of our our witness from afar of a way of life that they know is different, but they don't have any experience with or any contact with, um, and 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 make something of it. Yeah. And one of these upcoming episodes, Luke, um, that book that I really want to get, yeah, Center Church by um, Reverend uh, Timothy Keller. He's uh, the pastor at Redeemer Redeemer Presbyterian in the middle of New York City, um, a thriving church. Uh, a bastion of evangelical Christianity in the in, directly in the midst of, you know, not in comfortable suburbia, but in the middle of, I don't, I don't even know where, but in the middle of Manhattan, he's leading these lives change and he's rigorous in his Westminster confession theology, but he's also incredibly amazing at understanding the relationship between culture and church and culture and gospel. And, you know, some people view, culture as like, you know, what is my role as a Christian in the culture? Should I be a Christian doctor or is it enough that I'm a doctor who happens to be a Christian? Should I be a Christian artist? Does that even make sense? Is there a Christian plumber or am I a plumber who happens to be a Christian? Am I an, a musician who's a Christian musician or a musician who happens to also be a Christian? Can you give more examples? This is kind of fun. <laughs> okay. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> am I a carpenter okay. who's a Christian, <laughs> but his name is John? You know what I'm saying? You don't know. Is his name Christian? JD, I want to have you on the podcast more just for that moment alone. <laughs> I uh, I don't know the book by the Presbyterian, but I could recommend something by a Catholic. Oh, boo! Uh, have you have you guys, have you guys ever read Newman's? Um, sir, do you guys read a lot of Newman? I love Newman, and uh, he's got a sermon called Personal Influence. Um, I think it's called. I just looked it up. Personal Influence: The Means of Propagating the Truth, but it. It deals exactly with that. What? How is it? How does a Christian engage culture, and um, and what effect can it have? That's awesome. I, I'm going to check that out because I've never read Newman. So, oh, you guys, you gotta, you gotta get into Newman. I'm not gonna read it just because you insulted me before you introduced it. <laughs> <laughs> where, where? All right. Well, it's been about an hour and a half, but uh, dude, thank you so much, man. This was awesome. Like, this was just good. 
great. With my own life, just just to like hear a lot of the things that um, you that you talked about, which is very like edifying. So that was awesome, man. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you guys very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Is there any type of blog or, or, or anything like that that you want to do a quick plug for? No, I don't have any kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a thing. <laughs> That's fine. Um, thank you to all of our listeners. We are on Facebook at um, – it, oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank. It it is Facebook. Catching foxes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, Facebook.com/slash Catching Foxes Podcast. Uh, please, I'm going to give us a review and a rating on iTunes. Where are you, Gomer? Am I a Christian Gomer or a Gomer who <laughs> happens to also be a Christian? <laughs> we actually... Gosh, I am so pissed off at you right now. I am sweating <laughs> with anger. Oh, wait, that's because the air conditioning has been off for an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go turn the air conditioning. Yeah, so I'm at, I'm at Lay Evangelist. You can find me and all of our award-winning podcasts, in case you ever wanted to listen to them, <clears throat> on LayEvangelist.com. I'm, I'm on iTunes right now, which I didn't – this is this is how bad I am at being a young person. I didn't know that I had iTunes on my Mac because I don't have to do any kind of internet. Oh, See, okay, this is this here. is a ultra hipster level of being ironic now. Seriously, hey, I'm I'm going to give you a chance for a redemption on Twitter. I am at the Luke the sweet. Oh, that was your chance, JD. You gave us a deep cut from The Simpsons, and Luke gave you one. Oh yes, die Luke die. Yep. I'm so sorry. Yeah. No one who's well German could be evil. <laughs> I immediately thought of Lisa's crush on her, her substitute teacher and um there weren't any German there weren't any Jewish cowboys. <laughs> you are Lisa Simpson. Oh that's that's the best thing anyone said to me all day. <laughs> oh that's awesome. Dude, thanks again, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Okay. Uh, All right, gentlemen, this is what we need to do. Uh, Over your QuickTime player, where the stop button is, don't click it yet. We're going to count down. Uh, I'm going to say three, and when you hear me say three, you just count down in your head and then hit it off. Because I realize it's easier to sync audio when we end it rather than when we begin it, okay? Okay. Does that make any sense to anyone? Watch three seconds from when you say three. Yeah. Wait, so do I uh, turn it off at three, go one, two, three, off? No, I'm going to say three, two, but I want you to count to yourself as well. Okay, that's what Can I you thought. Just say now and we'll all do it now. No, 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 no. It has to start with three and we have to click the button at zero. <laughs> that's how civilization is built. It's a rule I'm, I'm a, making for us. Okay? I'm not, a, I'm not an internet man, so I've got to trust you. Uh, you have to because I'm shaping you through my law. Here we go. Well done. <clears throat> Three, two... You can do it. 